when I was a young monk, the teaching we would hear over and over again from um, the teachers was uh, the practice Sama Patipata, right practice. They talk about what is right practice. If you read Ajahn Chah, or listen to Ajahn Chah, he talk all the time about right practice, samapatipata. Obviously, that's based on the uh, eightfold noble path, path the way out of suffering. All those samas, samaditi, right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Samapatipata, right practice, is a shorthand for that. But Ajahn Chah would go on and also talk about, in more practical terms, sort of qualities involved. They might say it's the practice where you don't stop, you don't give up, is right practice. We'd say, uh, if you feel lazy, you do it, you feel energetic, you do it. You want to do it, you do it. You don't want to do it, you do it. It's right practice. It's learning not to just follow desire because the practice is all about getting to know desire, seeing it as the cause of suffering and finding the way to abandon desire, give it up. That means one has to develop strength of mind, qualities of mind that uh, help you to see, know desire and even resist desire, not just follow it, but to sometimes resist it and then to set it aside, let it go. So they talk about monks who are, had samapatipata, they talk about how they practice this with this quality of um, not giving in to liking or disliking. Mayin di, mayin right. Learning to keep the mind in a balanced place, not falling into moods based on desires of liking and disliking. It's obviously based on the conditions that one is experiencing in the practice. Whether it's the place one is, the people, the weather, one's own mental states is all just knowing things as they are, but not giving in to liking and disliking, just knowing with mindfulness. Just continuously turning to bring up mindfulness, pay attention to things as the key 
to this practice of not giving in to liking and disliking. You can see that we're challenged all the time in this. There's always the temptation or the tendency to give up the practice, to set aside mindfulness sometimes and just indulge in distraction or sleep or just to kind of turn away from Dhamma. Sometimes it takes great effort to bring up mindfulness, to keep practicing. Say on a night like this, full moon or half moon night, where we stay up late, it takes effort just to stay up. If one stays up all night, just to stay up all night takes effort. takes effort to be with conditions that are not favorable. The weather, people, and so on. But the way to deal with it is developing right practice, the qualities of right practice. It's mindfulness, right mindfulness, right effort. And learning how to contemplate, use wisdom to contemplate the conditions, not just give in to them with desire, but actually step back and look at them a bit with more wisdom. See them as anicca, dukkha, anatta. If we never learn to contemplate, then of course we're always going to be just a slave to our moods. Things go well, we're happy. Things don't go well, we're unhappy. And we're just pushed around all the time. So you might say our task when we come into the monastery is learning to establish right practice, right view, right practice. Get that as the fundamental of our lifestyle our right, and right attitude as well. Right approach to practice. Often in the world we go the other way around. Instead of taking responsibility for our suffering and our states of mind we go the other way and try and arrange the world to fit with the way we look at things we want the world to be the way we want so anything we don't like get rid of that what we like we keep whether it's people places work conditions whatever it is we tend to do that in the world but we don't get much wisdom from that because we're not contemplating, we're not becoming mindful, we're not contemplating, we're just reacting and following desire. Like Ajahn Chah would always talk about in the time of the Buddha, there's the Brahmin, Diganaka, the Brahmin, the one, the Brahmin with the long nails. He came up to see him on Gichiguta Mountain, Vulture's Peak. And he said to the Buddha, the Buddha's been talking about practice, and he said, I hold to the view whatever I like, I see that as right for me, I accept that. Whatever I don't like, I don't want, I see that as wrong for me, I don't accept that. And that's the way I practice, that's my view. And he was sure that's a the right kind of view to hold. 
The Buddha asked him, well, do you want old age? No. Are you going to get old? Are you going to experience old age? Yes. Do you want sickness? No. You're going to experience sickness. Do you experience sickness? Yes. Do you want death? No. Are you going to experience death? Yes. Well, there's three things, old age, sickness and death, that you don't want, but you're going to have to have. You're going to have to accept them. So your view that you only take and accept what you want and don't accept what you don't want, even that view is not really appropriate for you. You shouldn't accept that view because it's not correct. He discussed it with the Brahmin like this. They talked and gradually persuaded him, saw he could see the error of his view, just wanting things to be the way he wanted, not accepting anything that he didn't want. And they say, Venerable Sariputta, fanning the Buddha, heard that talk, that discussion, and became an arahant, completely let go of all his defilements, sense of self, views, conceit, a whole lot of it, listening to that discussion. Often we practice in this way, we just want what we like, and we don't want what we don't like. And then we wonder why we suffer. Of course the world is an imperfect place. It's not able to bring us what we want all the time. Life is not like that. We've all made karma and karma comes back to us as experiences of pleasant, unpleasant experiences. If we never learn to bring up mindfulness and contemplate in this way, then we'll always be spun around by the experiences of pleasure and pain. We'll attach to the pleasurable experiences, we'll want them, try and hold on to them, and the unpleasant will try and get rid of them. Now, even the pleasant experiences that make us feel happy, they're kind of poison in a way, because they're only laying, they're like a trap laying a trap for us to fall into suffering when we can't keep them or keep up with them, hold on to them. Ajahn Chah also used to talk about the monk who uh, in the time of the Buddha who was always full of doubt, doubt about the right way to practice, the right place, the right teacher, always doubting, always wondering, because he never started to practice for himself, never internalized the practice, brought up mindfulness, contemplated things. He always was looking to solve his doubt and his suffering by the, looking to depend on the words of other people. They say he'd hear the news, there's this teacher over the, in this, this place, this area, supposed to be very wise, very peaceful. He'd get excited and he'd travel off to see this teacher and stay with him for a while. And he'd listen to what he had to say. And after a while he'd listen, some things he'd agree with, but some things he didn't agree with. So he started to be dissatisfied again. 
they'd leave him. A bit later on it here, there's another great teacher over in another place. Get all excited again. Off he went and stay with him, listen to his talks. Hope to solve all his problems, all his suffering by listening to his talks. Some of the things he agreed with, some not. Mm, back to square one, still not free from doubt. Not happy to move off again. It went on like this for a while. Eventually heard the news that an enlightened Buddha had arisen in the world. In India, even non-Buddhists in those days, they knew the term Buddha, what it meant. Sama Sambuddha, supremely enlightened Buddha. So he got really excited when he heard that news. Rushed off. But the Buddha said you can't solve your doubts just with the words of other people, hoping that they'll agree with your views, fit with what you think. The only way you can solve doubt is by practicing have to internalize the Dhamma that you've heard. You have to practice mindfulness. You have to bring up mindfulness, no doubt, as doubt. And that's the hard part, because we often we don't want to practice, or we practice for a while and then moods come up again, so we want to move on or change conditions again. We see this as we are monks going through our life as monks. It's like this. And when we're in a monastery where there's a lot of food and a lot of people come and offer a lot of things, after a while we might feel, oh, too much food here, too much requisites, too much work, too much trouble. So we go off somewhere thinking, oh, I'll be on my own, free of all that trouble. Go off on your own. If in Thailand in the old days, you go off on your own, maybe stay somewhere on your own for a while, very simply. Maybe even start to get a bit thin or even sick because the food's not so good. You're on your own in a quiet place. Not enough requisites, not enough medicines, not enough drinks, not enough food. So after a while, you get a bit restless with that, not satisfied. You go off somewhere else again where there's more food, better food. On it goes. That's the way the mind works when you're still working from desire. You keep looking for external conditions to support the practice instead of trying to develop mindfulness and wisdom. Contemplate things. I was like this when I was a young man. Still always looking for better conditions. Quite natural when you experience some suffering, you think the solution is always just to move on somewhere else. When I was a layperson, I used to work in a shop in London, a very small shop in the center of London. And there was quite a large sales staff there. And every so often, there's a high turnover of staff, and every so often there'd be someone who didn't like, who came to work in the shop, someone who talked too much, or had different views and opinions on things, or their, their behavior just didn't fit with everyone else, so everyone would get upset with this person. You just had to be in the shop with them. And you always had the thought, hmm, if we can get rid of this person, everything will be happy. 
everything will be good. Maybe after a while they move on, you think everything's going to be good now, and then sooner or later someone else comes along, you start getting annoyed with them. When I came into the monastery, I could see that habit. Yeah, you're in a monastery, and maybe there's one one monk, one novice, one anagarika, or one layperson who annoys you. They talk differently, or too much, or too little. Their views are different. Their ways of doing things are different. They don't do it the way you like. So you start thinking, oh, if this person wasn't here, then everything will be good, just right. Sometimes they move on, sometimes you move on. But if you don't contemplate this, then of course the same thing happens wherever you go. Because the problem is not the other person, it's your own mind. Likes, dislikes, desires, it's the failure to look at them with mindfulness, failure to contemplate. There's one time when I've been monk a few years, I had to upatak Ajahn Chah a lot. Spent many weeks, months upataking him. And it was a very stressful, pressure kind of position because everyone had views and opinions on the best way to look after Ajahn Chah. So always bombarding you. The lay people who come to visit always saying he should be done like this, done like that. He needs this, he needs that. The monks had their views. All the monks from around Thailand, around the world, would come and visit. It has to be done like this, like that. A lot of pressure, a lot of views and opinions that bring up a lot of likes and dislikes. And if you practice mindfulness, you just notice that and let them go. Keep bringing up mindfulness, let go of desire. But when mindfulness slips, well, the pressure builds up, then you start feeling, mm, I want to get out of here too much. There's one year I did, went to see Ajahnanan, and he sent me off to southern Thailand with another monk. I thought, oh, I'll go somewhere very quiet, get away from people and views and opinions on the practice and the right way of doing things. I thought, oh, this will solve my problem. And in some ways it was good, nice peaceful place, forest, deep forest, a long way from uh, civilization, very remote area, very quiet, no electricity, no cars around, no people to bother us at first anyway. So we practiced very diligently, just wanted to meditate, didn't want to be bothered by anyone or anything. Thought, oh this is good got what I wanted. No views and opinions, nothing. So practice very hard. So we practiced, most nights we stayed up meditating all night long, didn't rest. And after a while, some of the nearby villagers heard that we did this. They wanted to come and look, see what we did at night. So they, on the one prat, the full moon night, they asked to come and keep the precepts and stay in the monastery. And so they'd sit in the hall with us, a small little wooden hall, open-sided, and we'd meditate all night, and they saw this, and they got very inspired, so they wanted to come every week, so they wanted to talk, and come. Then they'd tell other people, that these monks practicing very hard, meditating all night long, not sleeping, 
So more and more people started to come and offer food. In the beginning we'd had hardly any food. Then more and more people would come. And then in the Pansa they have this festival in Thailand called Opening the Gates of Heaven and Hell where people come and offer food and make merit for their relatives. In southern Thailand that's one of the biggest festivals. And in southern Thailand when they bring food they don't just bring a pot or a plate of food, they bring a binto, one of these carriers of food which has four or five little trays all with a handle on top. And each tray has a different dish in it. So they offer one tray at a time. So one person offers maybe five dishes of food with rice. And on this day, the festival day, we got 300 people turning up. Each had one of these bintos. Three times five. 300 times five. 1,500 trays of food. It took us about an hour to serve the food. Started to think, hmm, come a long way looking for peace and quiet, seclusion, end up with all this. Then the other monk started to think, hmm, there's a lot of support here, maybe I'll build a monastery. So every few days he'd start having different plans about building kutis and dying sheds and improving things and making it a bit better, doing this, doing that. And he thought he'd have, need a novice, somebody to help work. So he went off back to Bangkok to try and raise some funds so he could have money to build things and then go to Ajahnanan to get a novice or an anagarika to help. At first I thought, hmm, this is good. I'm going to be on my own for a while. He's gone off somewhere. But there was a man who had been living near the monastery who was actually a murderer on the run. And he'd tried to start a new life. He'd squatted on some land, built a house with his family. And he'd taken part of the monastery land, the forest land that was considered the monastery land. And he was getting very nervous that we were going to take, the monks would take this land back and get him in trouble. So when he saw the other monk had left, he put the word around in the village. He said that he can't guarantee the safety of the monk who's left in the monastery, better leave. And because everyone knew he was an ex-murderer, they didn't ignore his words, they took them seriously. There was me thinking, oh, I'm on my own now, it's going to be nice and peaceful. Next day I had six border police in the monastery with machine guns telling me the news, telling me, oh, we've got to watch out, look out for you. Hmm, not so peaceful again. It went on like this, all pants, there's different things going on, little things, people would come, more people would get to know about the monastery, little building projects, then later on in the Pansas, had a vision, an imitator of Ajahn Chah came. In this vision I was staying in a, a lighthouse, right on the edge of some land, some country somewhere, right out on a kind of a headland. No houses around, no people around. I was on this lighthouse, living on my own. 
thinking, ah, oh, this is a good place to practice, very quiet, no one to bother me, no problems. And then this huge yacht turned up. And it was full of young men and women, all dressed in bikinis and swimming costumes. They're all on a singles cruise, all these young men and women, all out to find a partner. And they're all drinking and partying, and there's hundreds of them. They all parked their yacht and all came flowing up onto the beach and up onto the lighthouse. And Lumpur Cha walked up at that point and he just looked at me and said, Oh, so you think you can find the perfect conditions and then you're very ignorant, foolish. And that's the way it is, isn't it, in life, if you're always looking for the perfect conditions to get rid of the things, the bits of it that you don't like, the people, the place, the climate, the food, whatever it is you don't like, if you think you're going to get rid of it and solve your suffering that way, well, you'll never do that, because that's not the way the world works. The way of right practice is learning how to contemplate by bringing up mindfulness first and then contemplating and each dukkha anatta, desire rises, desire passes away, it's just that much. Sometimes pleasant experiences, sometimes unpleasant experiences. If you want to transcend them, which is what the way the right practice, what it leads to, you have to develop this mindfulness and ability to reflect on things. If you're just trying to arrange the conditions, make things different from what they are, then you're not going to transcend anything. You'll just forever be running around trying to arrange things, get it different, work it a bit better. And that's the same whether you're in a monastery or in the lay life, wherever you are. So this is why Ajahn Chah used to emphasize samapatipata and samaditi, right view, as the foundation of practice. Even if you find it difficult to bring up mindfulness, difficult to be with conditions, then at least you can get the right understanding and the right attitude and the right view towards conditions. Obviously there are those conditions which are more difficult for us to bear with, the more extreme things. But if you have the right understanding, at least you've got a foundation, a way of looking at conditions, and they can become a food for wisdom, a source of wisdom, rather than just something that you react to and suffer with. You can actually learn from the unpleasant experiences just as much as the pleasant experiences. But we have to be willing to do that, willing to practice, to bring out mindfulness and keep doing that, and willing to keep contemplating. And this is why we need effort in the practice, you know, right effort. Samma on paper it's you know, the effort to bring up wholesome dhammas, abandon unwholesome dhammas, develop the wholesome dhammas further and prevent unwholesome dhammas from arising for right efforts. And in practical terms it's the effort to bring up mindfulness establish mindfulness so that we can look at, observe our experience, observe the conditions of, that are coming up 
with mindfulness and from that we gain wisdom, understanding, true understanding. We see things in the end there just that much. Pleasant experiences are just pleasant experiences, pleasant feeling, pleasant it's just pleasant feeling. Unpleasant experiences are just unpleasant experiences. Unpleasant feeling is just unpleasant feeling. That's all that is. In the end they're of equal value. So we need to develop right effort. This is the way that comes from the right view. Start to develop the right effort. And that gives us the chance, at least the opportunity, to even make something good out of suffering. Even our, our dislikes, our moods when we're bored or we're fed up, angry, depressed, sad, whatever, can become dumber when we practice in this way. Otherwise, uh, the alternative is always just to be on the run, moving from one mood to another, trying to get outrun the moods, trying to outrun run our karma. And it doesn't really work. We keep running into brick walls. Sometimes the conditions are testing in this life. It's not an easy life as a monk. One has rules to keep, vinaya to keep, discipline to keep. One has to practice restraint when sometimes the mind doesn't want to be restrained. One has to be patient with the conditions and endure through things. Can't run away sometimes. But that's all the, the more reason why there's a chance that we can actually gain something from the experience. We can actually really change and develop our hearts in a good way. If one has that, say, sincerity and commitment to the practice, another part of Samapatipata, one is doing it sincerely, then one can uh, get by on any, with anything, one can deal with anything. And even when we reach the point, say we're at the end of our tether or completely fed up, well, you can still contemplate, well, that's just another experience, isn't it? At least you know what it's like when you're completely at the end of your endurance. I was reminded of this the other day. Somebody said they uh, had this meeting this week at the United Nations. All the presidents and leaders of all the countries around the world were there. And everyone gives an address, a speech, and it has to be translated. There's a live translation, so a running translation with the speech. But each speech is timed. It's supposed to be just 15 minutes which perhaps is a manageable section or length of time for a translator, an interpreter to deal with. It's a very tiring job when you're trying to translate something on the run. You're listening and then translating. Very, very tiring because you have to concentrate, use your brain, use your mindfulness. 
I've done this a lot in my life as a monk, so I know what it feels like. Because there was this one leader, Gaddafi from Libya. He, uh, perhaps he'd been waiting, I think it was his first speech for many, many years in the UN. He'd been waiting his chance and perhaps he's uh, saved up a lot to say. So he didn't stop speaking after 15 minutes. He went on for 90 minutes. And they said after about, I don't know how long it was, an hour or something, the interpreter was trying to keep up with him and he was just ranting, just ranting in Arabic, haranguing everybody in the world and just saying what he wanted to say. And the translator's got to keep up. And this is you know, spread around the world on the media, on the TV, the newspapers, everything that's going on. After an hour or so, the translator just collapsed. They couldn't keep up. They just said on, on the air, they just said, I can't go on anymore. <laughs> they just stopped. Broke down in tears, I think. He was just ranting for 90 minutes. It made me uh, think of a few times I've been through that. Sometimes, like, many occasions where they're very, very tired and have to translate for a teacher. Someone like Lumpo Liam or Lumpo Blian, sometimes they can talk for two or three hours late at night and just have to translate for them. Remember one time I'd Upatak. Lumpocha all night hadn't slept a wink for 24 hours very very tired at 10 o'clock in the morning I was going back to my kuti have a rest and someone came around and said oh there's this group of western people come to see Lumpoliam we need someone to translate I went over and paid respect sat down and Lumpur just started giving her a talk. And the first section of the talk lasted 40 minutes. I had no notes, no paper or anything. I just had to remember it and then translate it for them. And these were all very important people from the USA came to see him. So I had to try and make some kind of a translation. That was just the first section of the talk, 40 minutes. And then on it went and then there's questions and answers. So I, by the time I got back to my kuti, there wasn't much left of my five candles, just kind of mash, mishmash. Not much brain left, not much body left. I sometimes go to Thailand and uh, travel all day, maybe on a plane, travel all around Thailand, go up to Ubon or something, come back to what Mark Jan and Ajin Anand starts giving a Dhamma talk at nine or ten o'clock at night. Needs a translation, goes on till midnight or something. And many, many times I've reached that point, oh, what it's like to reach the end of your tether, the end of your energy, the end of your endurance. And the thought comes out, oh, I can't take any more of this. And then what happens? Well, you just carry on. (laughs) It's just a thought. Is just a desire, rising, passing away. I can't go on. Hmm. You go on maybe for another hour or two. <laughs> can't take it anymore. 
Hmm. Gone for another hour or two. Many, many times had that thought. Maybe not so much these days, but certainly in the early days. And the bhikkhu life is bound to bring up that thought in your mind sometimes. But it's just a thought, it's just a desire that arises, passes away. You know, it's just a thought and when it finishes, um, inevitably you can carry on with whatever you can't carry on with or you can't stand anymore. If it's a person, you can't stand this person anymore. You find, oh, you can. You can carry on living with that person. Conditions places, these are just thoughts, desires, craving, arising, passing away when we have a mood based on something like this. It's just a mood. The more we practice mindfulness and the more we learn to contemplate these things, then one gets a sense of self-confidence. This is what we call satar, you know, the first of the five powers. Sata, when the Buddha or Ajahn Chah is talking about sata, faith, confidence, it's not really just kind of feeling inspired by a good talk or meeting somebody who talks Dhamma skillfully or something like that or reading a good book about Dhamma. That's a very kind of transient passing inspiration. When we talk about sata, we talk about, it's meaning confidence based on one's experience in Dhamma practice based on Samma Patipata. Confidence that, oh, this is what works, this is what leads to the arising of wisdom, understanding, knowing the truth just as the Buddha taught it, knowing that, oh, conditions are impermanent, they're anicca, they're dukkha, they're anatta, they're not self, they're just conditions that arise, pass away, they're not really me. When one's seen that a few times, especially in the more extreme situations, well then, that's where sata arises, confidence, based on experience, truly knowing for oneself. It's no longer just based on words of other people, books, guessing, theorizing, the whole lot of that. It's not based on that, it's just based on knowing for oneself, having seen and known clear knowledge, clear vision. It might not yet be even you know, enlightenment, but it's something that you can take as a refuge because it's something you've passed through and known for yourself and you don't have any doubt about it. So it might be just knowing that, oh, when the thought, I can't stand this anymore, comes up, oh, at least I know that's just a thought and I can stand it a little bit more than I thought. knowing that I can bring up mindfulness sometimes of things that I thought couldn't be mindful of, different experiences. You can be mindful of extreme anger, or extreme fear, or lust, or worry, or doubt, all the kinds of stuff that bug us as people. One can be mindful of that, and then one can know, oh, this, I've been mindful of that, passed through that. And just like we have this sort of storm ranging for a few days, there's intense rainfall and wind and stuff. You pass through it and that's the end of it. And you can experience mind states like that with mindfulness or pain. So you're sitting on an all-night sit where you've got lots of pain in your legs to get to the point where you say, I can't stand it anymore, I've got to get up. 
maybe you just hold on a bit more and you realize, oh, I can stand it, I can last a bit longer. It was just a thought, just a desire, tricking me, fooling me. So you get a bit more confidence that way. And with confidence you get many qualities. You get brave, you become braver, bolder, because of the confidence based on your own experience. As you become bolder, then you can you know, face up to things you thought you never could face up to. You can be with things you thought you could never be with. Because you know, oh, in the end, it's just conditions arise, pass away. They're just an icha dukkha anatta. They're not me, they're not mine. They're just what they are. So with confidence, with satta, then the Buddha said, well, that's where wiriya arises from, effort, energy. If there's no confidence, well, of course, there'll be no effort. If one has no confidence, no faith, then one won't want to try on anything. When confidence arises, and it brings up more motivation to keep practicing based on what one experienced already, one can see, and there's a way. With wiriya, with effort, then this is the effort to bring up more mindfulness. More mindfulness, the continuity of mindfulness brings up more samadhi, more calm. And from that foundation, more wisdom arises. So these five powers, they support each other, they nourish each other. That's why we call them powers. They grow and they become more powerful in one's consciousness, in one's personality the Buddhist path is very much it's a learning and it's a way that human beings can realize their potential and the Buddha wouldn't have taught it or Ajahn Chah wouldn't have taught it if it's not something human beings can practice but it doesn't mean to say it's easy but it is something we can practice. We have that potential to train in mindfulness, to understand things more deeply, to see Anicca Dukkha Anatta. We have that potential. We just have to learn how to do it. Often we don't see the potential because we get caught up in the conditions. Jen Chai used to say it's like a mango seed or the seed in the mango fruit you know, if you really know the Dhamma then you can see that that seed if it's planted and watered well it can grow into a tree grows up, branches come, leaves come eventually you get flowers and eventually you get fruit but when we're deluded we don't see that potential what deludes us well, it's where does a mango seed come from? It comes from a mango. When you eat a mango, you're not thinking of the seed. Most people, they throw the seed away. They don't see the potential. They're just caught up in the nice flavor, the sweetness of the flesh. And life is a bit like that. We tend to always throw away our potential and always go for the flesh. There's something that's sweet, but very impermanent, temporary kind of distractions and happinesses.
So tonight is a late night practice night. We can uh, chant some paritas and then carry on meditating. I'll leave that for your reflection.